0: Um, So my name's Ella and I'm really excited to welcome Emily and Chris from Small World Bakery to have a chat to us this afternoon. Um, I think that grains uh, tends to be one of those things that is a little bit overlooked in the regenerative food discussion. We all probably, or most of us, eat a lot of them, um, but growing them in a way that is not really... Environmentally destructive and is resilient is quite challenging. Um, so, these guys have done a whole lot of really fascinating work and research, um, but linked back to the actual end product of the grain, which is beautiful bread, um, which you can try while you're here. Uh, so, Emily, I'm actually not going to read the bio, I'm just going to let you introduce yourself because you're going to do a better job. Um, and we're there's plenty of time for um, questions. So if you've got anything that comes up, then just jump in and, and um, I'm sure these two will be more than happy to, to answer your question. So over to you guys. All right.
1: Thanks. I don't know we'll it a bit closer. Is that, can people hear that? Is that all right? Yeah. I oh, know, Tom, you can hear. Yeah. Okay. Thanks for coming. Um, thanks for asking us. And um, we, um, yeah, we hope that... In the next um, 30 or 40 minutes, we tell you a bit about our story and uh, you can understand a bit about what we're trying to do, how we've gone about it, what we've learnt over um, particularly the last uh, three or four years. And um, I think, yeah, we um, ummed and about whether we come with a, you know, PowerPoint and slides and then we talked to a few people and they said, no, just come and have a chat. So um, hopefully that's what it can be and... Hopefully you all feel comfortable at any stage. Just yell out and stop us where we're at. And um, if you want to have a little talk or question about that particular point, um, yeah, st- do that. And hopefully it'll work. So um, I don't know. Do you want to start the bakery? Tell a bit about. I don't know. Start that.
2: Yeah. Yeah. We um, for 11 years now. We've been um, running Small World Bakery from home. Um, it started out. Um, we were Chris was consulting and vin, um, consulting to um, vineyard developers um, and developing vineyards and in partnership. So he was extremely busy traveling and um, really in in a whole world of um, Langhorne Creek and um, a little bit interstate as well. Um, wine right at the at the very peak of um, wine grape sales. And I had stopped making cheese at Woodside Cheese Rights to have children. And this was a way of just maintaining, um, you know, my hand in the workforce I could work from home. So Chris built a fantastic wood oven and um, I decided better learn how to make sourdough bread because that's the truest form of bread making um, for a, a wood-fired, wood-fired oven. And so we went into this complete um, world of, um, sourdough bread and delivering wholesale to people as further and further from home, but, um, as to our capacity as we possibly could with two small children, Chris still working in the vineyards. And, uh, we did that for six years. Um, we reached capacity with the wood fired oven after about three years, um, I was waking up at 11.30 on a Friday night to bake for Saturdays um, and just baking for eight hours straight out of this oven, which is a fantastic oven. It's, a, it's an Alan Scott direct heat oven that you um, fire for uh, about eight hours prior to baking and then you clean it out and all of that radiant heat just keeps feeding back into the cavity and you can, you can do quite a few loads um, on the receding heat. So um, we were supp- we were sourcing wood, we were chopping wood, we were running with the wheelbarrow, I was running out to the wood pile to chop enough wood to bring it back. Running over to the um, kitchen where I was preparing doughs, I'd be preparing the doughs and think, actually, I wonder if the fire's okay, run out. No, nah, the wood was too cold, it was too wet, so I had to run out and try and find some dry wood underneath. So that, w- that was it was very fun i was um in my mid 30s i didn't need to sleep i had babies anyway i wasn't sleeping so i might as well go crazy as well um but
1: you get the picture. as a bit chaotic it was it was
2: chaotic but but it had its own rhythm it it did have its own um cycle and rhythm every day every week no
1: approvals for anything um we were just just
2: we just wanted to make tasty bread so we yep. were making tasty bread, and um, it was with organic produce and and what we could find locally. But we didn't. But I didn't really investigate where our ingredients was, were coming from, assuming that if I could buy it locally, it was pretty much local produce. Then um, we were getting pretty exhausted. We needed to upgrade to um, bigger facilities and um, become a bit more professional about the whole outfit, so that we could supply wholesale into Adelaide. We did that. It took two years to get council approval and then another year to build. And um, I moved into a beautiful bakery that Chris um, designed along the same kind of lines as a winery. So it's got a very good flow. It's um, very efficient. Um, the um, temperature is quite well controlled. We became certified organic. Um, so that was another layer of um, onerous paperwork for Chris to achieve um periodically but but looking back it was simple because we were just processing other people's documentation we weren't producing any of the organic ingredients ourselves so we had to keep that in perspective but it was really good because we were able to sell into Adelaide um, to um, a whole range of um, stores that were seeking certified organic food, uh, bread which wasn't actually available to them um, until we came along but We needed to expand again, we needed to produce more bread so that it was more um, profitable for us. So then we hired a courier to come at three o'clock in the morning and take bread down to our wholesale customers. Chris was going um, an hour later with a huge key ring on his belt and he would open people's garages, shop garages and push boxes underneath and we were losing contact with our customers. We weren't talking to our um, shopkeepers anymore. They weren't paying us because we didn't have that relationship. And Chris was spending a lot of time in the office every week just chasing accounts and trying to maintain some kind of um, feeling of obligation that if they've eaten fresh bread, they should pay for it. So... um...
1: And we'd become reliant too on (laughs) on staff um, to do the volume of um, bread that we were doing. We were... Um, employing um, effectively like assistant bakers or baker's assistants and um, we found it very hard to find people who were reliable I mean the hours were horrendous and we are you know an hour from Adelaide it's not that easy to to find people locally and um, we we got to a point which was sort of towards the end of 2015 I suppose wasn't it by then there We were just looking at each other over the bench one night, and it's just like, you know, what are we doing here?
2: Both of us had separately crashed our car into our veranda post within two weeks, (laughs) (laughs) and we realised it was fatigue. (laughs) So, we um, shouldn't be driving.
1: So, we had had one of those moments, I suppose, where we go, you know, what are we doing? And um, I mean, there were options we could have attempted to sell our business. you know, um, we could have tried to continue and hire someone better perhaps to work with us but um, the, our business is on our farm, our home, we weren't planning on really going anywhere so we made the decision to close and um, we've got two sons they were then in year 7 and 9 and we figured that a year off school wouldn't kill them and so we went overseas um, in 2016 and we travelled throughout Europe and North America principally and through online resources, Instagram is where a lot of bakers hang out and you learn a fair bit um, (coughs) from Instagram. We'd become aware that um, there were people doing things differently, particularly in Europe and North America, and these people were growing grain on a small scale, like when I talk a small scale, you know, in the you know, 5, 10, 50-type acre farms, not, you know, 1, 2, 5,000-acre type farms. And they were harvesting that grain, processing it locally in small-scale mill facilities and then baking with that flour fresh a few days a week old, which is, doesn't really happen much in Australia. So this was all kind of new thinking for us. Um, we were interested but we didn't really know anything about it and we couldn't, from here, we felt we couldn't find out what we wanted to know from here. So we made this decision that um, we'd just bite the bullet and go and see what happens and um, we literally emailed heaps of people in the first probably three months or so that we were away and we just introduced ourselves and we said, can we come and have a look, maybe we can work with you um, this is who what we're trying to learn what we're trying to achieve are you willing to help us and we pretty much um, had no idea what sort of a response we would we would get but um, almost universally people just like yeah no problem and we had the best time and once we got the ball rolling and got started then these the people who we'd been with they introduced us to others and um, we' just We just learned so much in 12 months and really, um, I suppose, got the confidence that this is possible, that this could happen, that maybe we could do this. And um, so our concept of a local grain economy was sort of formed in that time and it revolves around just what I spoke about, people growing the grain that they use in some sort of proximity to where it's, uh, it's consumed, that, you know, it happens on smaller-scale farms, farms that are more diverse in their output and operation, and that and as part of that um, community organisation, there is these smaller-scale processing facilities um, which enable, you know, grain to be milled into flour, but also that there's these other ancillary or related businesses. So we saw distilleries, um, maltsters, breweries, other food businesses that integrated these these grain products into their, whether they're, you know, their production or their menu. And and then people, for us, the real interest in making bread with flour that's freshly milled and predominantly whole grain um, it was it was really good. So.
2: Yeah, we were we were interested in um, pursuing um, more <coughs> flavour in our breads. We had until um, twenty fifteen approached that as um, from a fermentation point of view, and we're trying to extend fermentation, introduce um, uh, colder temperatures. We were thinking <coughs> that that would bring. Um, more flavour into our bread and more people eating the bread and more nutrition. But we had tasted um, bread made with freshly milled wheat um, at Tivoli Road Bakery in Melbourne and it was only a 20% flour addition that was freshly milled but it was pretty mind-blowing. This, this, um, it was like something that Dad probably used to make, a, a bread that he would make for the family but it was something else as well. And we had read that um, in the States uh, identity preserved wheats particularly, but also ryes and other grains um, had individual flavour profiles uh, that could be aligned with um, the same kind of diversity that we can find in wine grapes, in different tomato varieties, in um, apples and pears. And and that um, way of Uh, looking at foods was already that language was already current in the farmers market uh, movement and also in people trying to um, revive heirloom varieties of fruits and vegetables but we had never heard of that with grain and the reason to try to find more flavour in bread is not only to bring more people to eat the bread but also there would be an indication that there is better nutrition in that food, if it tastes better, if it's more appealing to people's um, palates, then there's probably um, a lot more um, complexity in the um, nutritional substrate of that food. So, that was interesting. We wanted to pursue that, and when we did travel, we were tasting identity preserved grains in end in products, including pastry, cake. Um, crackers, crackers, and breads, and pasta, beer, beer yeah, and now, <laughs> and now, mm. if I get a sample, if I ring up a supplier to find out about acacia seed, um, like wattle seed, to add into my bread. They get excited and they send me what I've asked for, but then they send me samples of five other varieties and I'm thinking, oh, okay, there's other varieties and I roast them up and taste them. And oh, of course, you idiot, Emily. Of course they all taste different. They do taste different. So um, there's something really valuable and worthwhile to me to maintain the, um, the separation between varieties and to maintain um, those different flavours because... Uh, then you can work with that going forward. Um, And I guess we can talk about um, why it's important to try to revive ancient grains or historic grains um, because there's actually another vision that goes on from that um, and it's uh, about future breeding for grains that um, is more to do with um, grains being suitable for a changing climate and for more mixed farming systems and uh, also for having um, a fluidity and being able to turn on a dime if things do start changing in your local region. So.
1: <coughs> One of the, the things about mixed farming is um, make the point that in the best examples of the, a local grain economy we saw, you, you know, those of you that farm will understand this, but you know, sustainably, you can't grow, let's say, wheat in the same paddock every year, you know, year on year. It doesn't work, right? And it's not good for um, that land and that, you know, that system as well. But one of the challenges is um, the best examples of, um, you know, holistic sustainable farming involve a long rotation of crops and then, you know, potentially the um, use of livestock in those rotations as well. But whilst... You know, there's you know interest and demand in let's say some of the grain crops like wheat or rye. Or whatever, a lot of the other potential crops that would benefit be good in a rotation. The value for them is is limited, and it's it's, it's a it's a challenge to make this successful. Is to find you know high value innovative end uses for you know legumes and other um, other crops that are grown in that. System in order to give you the best possible outcomes for, you know, perhaps what you might be your focus crops or focus, focus areas. So um,
2: often the farmer will take a cash discount for um, those secondary crops that aren't the main cash crop. And, um, you know, it would be really great if people like us, end users, could find more uses for those um, in between crops. Um, you know, it's an incentive for the farmer to find more rotations and more options, but also it's great for customers. They get to eat stuff that's um, more flavour and more
1: diverse. So I know we'll talk about the mill a bit, I suppose. Yeah, so while we're away, we...
2: We did plant. We should talk about what we planted.
1: That's true. We did plant a little bit of grain before we went out. So in trying to revive some of these old lines and... um, you know, get to use them, bake with them, um, get other people interested with them. We started to have a um, a look at well, where do we get seed from? You know, where do we? How do we start this? And um, the short answer is there's pretty much none. Right? But we did, um, we sort of knew of, but we weren't really at this stage. We didn't really understand how it worked. But there's this thing called the Australian Grains Gene Bank. Which um, is located in Horsham, in Victoria. Um, at that time, there was also another I don't know, facility, branch, whatever, up at um, in New South Wales. But um, so that is a lot of you will be familiar with the um, <coughs> the seed bank in Norway. You know, it's sort of you know where all around the world deposits are made. Well, this facility is similar. It's a big air-conditioned shed, not a um, hole in a glacier. But, um, but they have a huge collection of um, seeds that have been used in agriculture, in, um, in gr- grains that been used in agriculture in Australia. And um, it's really existed as a, a resource, a historical resource, as a library where um, predominantly researchers... Have access to gain material that they've used in their breeding or research programs. So they were quite, um, I don't know, surprised to hear from someone like us who was saying, you know, what are what is the possibilities of people like us accessing this collection? And um, they had a quick think about it and came back and said, no, look, it's it's possible. We can we can do that. So we. Um, went through like literally what is you know a reams of Excel spreadsheet files with lots of names some of which were familiar a little bit to us from um, what we'd read about people using overseas but often it's simply accession numbers and um, they don't really mean you know that much to to us so we were really um, you know shooting in the dark a bit as to what and there's obviously physical limitations to how many different lines you can manage but we we sort of got ourselves a, a short list and sent away and um you get back a hundred seeds of the variety that you have requested which is 10 12 15 grams depending on how big the, the seed is but you know it literally is three or four 20 cent pieces worth in the palm of your hand it's not that much. So the challenge is then how do you go from that into tons basically that you know is usable. So we're four years into that that journey and maybe I don't know we'll talk a little bit about how we've gone about getting from what is effectively a big home veggie plot out into the paddocks where we now have several um, hectares or acres of some varieties in production and um, fingers crossed, if we have a better year this year than last year, um, next year we will be moving to a point where we have what, for us, our commercial quantities. Yeah, so. Yeah, we were,
2: we were looking for um, varieties that have been grown in um, semi-arid or low rainfall areas, um, had a um, similar um, temperature range in winter. Um, but still it was very difficult to find very much information, um, so we really went with thirty six varieties that seemed okay and and added some Australian some old Australian ones in as well, just for fun and But the best thing is just watching them grow because you can learn so much just by going out every every couple of days and seeing how the plant actually grows in your plot so um, You know, we mollycoddle them at the beginning, we hoe them and we put on worm juice and we, you know, chuck out pellets and compost. (laughs) We're not going to do that over, you know, um, 50 acres, but, you know, we're really... um, It's a way of going and looking at them and and actually finding out the the timing and and how the heads form and when and how long it is from head formation until grain fill, until, um, you know, dough stage, until it's ready ready to go and all of that is, it's effectively data that you store away year after year. Then you have a year like last year and everything just goes out the window, but at the same time we um, learn that um, these plants are extremely resilient, incredibly resilient, and even though there was a big wind tunnel down one paddock and it was slightly lighter soil and germination was appalling, um, there was... Three tillers instead of twenty tillers on most of the plants. We have still got heads, and we still got grain, and we're still replanting. We've just finished replanting now, so they're extraordinarily tough plants for an annual grain. So, in,
1: that's, in the I was going to say, in the first year we sowed by hand, like literally
2: um, on hands and scratched, knees,
1: scratched scratched a trench with a hoe and crawled along, and
2: that's um, how university researchers do it. Drop
1: seed. So in they the get ground. students
2: to do it. And, um, <laughs>
1: it was hard work but we were enthusiastic and we got there and um we harvested that grain with secateurs like by hand and um we mucked around with a few homemade threshing options none of which really worked and then we bought a um small scale it's a machine made in france but it's a 12 volt like runs on drill batteries sort of a thing and um that did a it's, the sampling. A, it's yeah, a, the sampling. It's sampling out in the sampling of the field. In the field yeah. It did an okay job.
2: It so. throws quite a few away, but yeah. if we hold up tarps, we can catch them. Yeah.
1: So um, so the next year, we moved to um, mm-hmm. basically a, a bigger scale, of what you might consider a vegetable patch. And we bought a, some for me familiar with <coughs> Jang Cedars. And, uh, so that is, for us, that's a sensational machine. It does <laughs> a really good job. And we can sow quite a lot of um, grain relatively quickly on a, a small scale with that. And um, that second year, we used a modified brush cutter, a hedge trimming bar on a brush cutter with some wheels attached and that enabled us to um, cut the uh, grain reasonably efficiently and lay it down and then we scooped it up and bundled it into sheaths and um, stacked it in wool packs mm-hmm. and we had a reasonable sort of volume of yeah. material and we didn't really know um, where we were going to, you know, go next with this but um, we just kept, you know, talking to people and um, eventually we were, that's why it's good to have bread but we were um, selling bread at a cheese festival in Adelaide and um, this young, well, young to me, he was in his, was about late 20s I guess was questioning us about the origins of some of the bread and um or some of the flowers in the bread and he seemed to know a lot about um Australian grain varieties and um you know he was um, very familiar with the language we were using and that so I, and he got quite a bit of bread he was and I, so I, I said to him I said how do you know all this and he said oh, I'm a, um PhD researcher at the Waite campus um, in... Um, I'm mainly working in Bali, but, you know, I've done lots of work in wheat and triticale. And so I was like, you are my next So best we friend. pretty yeah. much <laughs> opened <laughs> French champagne that night.
2: We had met the so best he,
1: guy. <laughs> he got a lot of free bread in the next um, couple of months and um, hopefully it doesn't matter now, but very generously he opened the back door to the Waite and we took stuff there and um, he did something else which he was good to do and we ended up got our (laughs) grain threshed and um we had bags of seed to go for the the next year so um this year we that the next year we moved up to sort of we had about six or seven hectares of different plots planted and we used uh, a vineyard cedar like basically a, a small scale cedar that they used to sow cover crops in vineyards and um that worked really well, and um, that's equipment that we have access to. And so, again, that worked, uh, was, yeah, it was quite efficient. And we'd had enough time to think about it, and that, and we laid out our plots in such a way that there were sufficient headlands um, around them that we could then use a commercial size, like a 30 foot front header, to harvest. It meant that we effectively wasted some land. But we were we just leased additional area because we realized by then that if we were going to um, going to harvest um, this in some manner that you know wasn't going to involve us I don't know, killing ourselves that we needed to do that. so because
2: we're running a bakery at the same time. And
1: so that was that worked. and we also um, have now got a relationship with a contracting business which is based in Mount Barker who effectively do trial work for um, some for the universities and the ag departments but also for um, like fertiliser chemical companies and other um, seed breeders and that sort of thing so they are like a a private research organisation if that makes sense so they have small scale plot harvesters seeders um, sprayers and this sort of thing so we've gotten really well with them and so they now they've got like a A header, it's got like a 1.2 metre front on it, you know, fits on a car trailer, and um, so we use them each year now for some of the the smaller areas. So this year is our fourth year, and um, we've got three different farms where we're leasing land, and all together we'd have about 10 hectares, I suppose, of of plantings. And uh, some of the bigger... Areas now we've moved to, like, normal, not air seeders, but a 20-foot um, disc seeder with um, press wheels. And um, so literally, we you know, we can sow, you know, we can sow five or six hectares an hour with, um, with that equipment. And the other smaller plots, we use the seeder from the research organisation, Select Ag. And, um, you know, again, in a couple of days we can do what we need to do. So that's meant, um, you know, we can be reasonably efficient in terms of, yeah, getting this program or the seeding program at least going. But um, if we didn't have access to those, and that's a real challenge for people. Um, we've known others who are doing something similar. There's one guy in the Mornington Peninsula who's got a pretty big sort of a program going. He, um, he imports small-scale machinery from China and he's having pretty good success Mm. with that Um, but um, yeah it's one of the real barriers to getting this Mm. sort of thing going is that the equipment to make it happen is it's just not it's not there and um, it's um, yeah it's been a real challenge for us to you know try and get that sorted out but um, part we've had you know articles in newspapers in magazines on landline it's sort of raising profile has been um, in a roundabout way really good for us because people then contact you and say we know of you know someone here or we know of someone who's got this and um, that's that ways you know that's worked for us in that yeah, for a few occasions but, um
2: so speaking of equipment um we had this ongoing program with growing the grain and then um, we also wanted to be able to process grain going forward and um on our trip to the states we um we had been thinking in when we were in denmark we had gone to a mill house that had a um, danish stone mill in sight, which was um, human scale you know a meter diameter stones um, when we were in the States, there were a couple of different mills that we looked at and um, finally we settled on a new American stone mill which is produced by a um, baker with an engineering bent in Elmore, um, uh, Vermont. So we've spent some time at Elmore Mountain Bread in Vermont and um, learnt as much as we could about this stone mill and got to know the couple that run that business and um, committed to importing one of their mills. That Andrew, um, the baker with the engineering bent, uh, makes with natural granite stone from nearby in Vermont, um, and we were able to um, have that mill on site um, last the January before the one just gone. So um, we've been operating that eighteen months. Yeah, yeah. Um, it's a really fantastic piece of machinery because um, there's
1: some flour if anyone
2: wants to open the packets and feel it so this is all we can produce whole grain flour with um, the grain come going in the top through a hopper down through an eye in between the two stones which um, spin and feed the the grain as it goes into smaller and smaller particles out to the to the very outside and sweeps that very finely ground whole grain flour that's this texture here into bins, which we then use immediately within that week in the, in the bakery. Um, using such fresh flour um, has, um, we are able to capture aromas and um, flavors from the, from the fresh flour that you can't get from bagged flour that comes from interstate or from, even from Lauki Mill, they produce a lot of their flour interstate now. They're, they're relocating and centralizing over in Victoria. It's just the way of the um, industrialised food system. They're trying to maintain their efficiency. They're um, searching for better grain sources themselves, and they're really looking at export markets and retail small packs. So we're not able to um, get the kind of flour that we want from them, so this is why we've got this mill ourselves. And then um, we're going to be next year, we're confidently saying now, we're going to be able to um, grind our own grain that we've grown and produce our own flour from that. Mm. Um, But, yeah, Chris operates the mill um, one day a week. He spends the whole day just um, producing all the flour that we need for the bakery and then can top up um, later on in the week if need be. Um, But those two, the couple that um, produce that mill... From Elmore in um, Vermont came out last year, last April, and um, really took a group of us really in depth into the workings of the mill, how to pull it apart, how to maintain the stones which need to be dressed and roughed up once or twice a year. Um, looked at how to produce bread from that flour um, in a very uh, considered way because it's different to using bagged flour. Bagged flour is produced for bakers uh, to be consistent and to have um, the ability to cope with staff that don't know what they're doing or to uh, plant machinery that um, is push-button.
1: That's something to consider with um, this sort of sourcing of grain is when you buy commercial flour or even grain for your own milling, more than likely that grain is a blend of you know, two, three, five, fifteen different sources. And they that's done so that that flour is within spec specification and performs to a, you know, expected known type of standard. When you say, like we plan to do, we'll plant, you know, five acres of this or we go to, you know, Joe and Mary who are farming and say we'll buy your wheat from that paddock,
0: you
1: you're taking a risk and um that's part of how all this has to happen. you've got to commit and share risk, otherwise no one gets anywhere but um, you, there's a certain skill in being able to adapt your um, bread making process and your production process to take into account the variability that comes with um, with sourcing flour on that or sourcing grain at least on that on that scale and um that's been problematic for a lot of people, but um, these particular people from Elmore, they're very good at, um, you know, developing techniques Mm -hmm. and they're very generous in sharing their experience and, um, you know, we've had some successes and and failures, but on balance we've got enough confidence now that we feel, you know, within reason we can, um, you know, cope with most things. But it is also important, I don't know how what i'm trying to say is um if you're going to do that you need to be close to your customers and your customers need to understand your story and they need to understand that um from week to week the bread might look a little bit different you know and um Mm -hmm. that's to be celebrated not you know we're not about you know everything being you know super uniform super you know puffed up pretty you know if you want to buy into all of this and have bread that's um, more flavoursome, more nutritious, sourced um, you know, in a responsible and sustainable way from somewhere local, you've got to, you have know, gotta get used to a bit of this variation in the, in the process.
2: Um, so that probably brings us to, we've, we started out with the story about how we um, crashed at wholesaling moment um, now we don't wholesale. Um, when we returned to selling the bread, it was as in a direct a way as we could to get this bread to enough customers that it was um, an a efficient yeah. efficient business for two people to run. Um, and so Chris came up with a really great. Uh, Plan to sell online, and it was inspired by the um, Northern Hemisphere model of CSA that we come across, which you guys would be familiar with, and uh, it's called a CSB, Community Supported Bakery. Um, we weren't sure how people would come at having a long-term subscription for bread because it is... Um,
1: it's a bit of a new it's thing a new Not thing. many people, people understand
2: are, it. Yeah, there, there's a big... Um, you've got to really take into consideration the way people buy bread. It's walking down the high street, smelling the bread, coming out of the shop, going, oh, that's right, I meant to buy bread, walking into the shop and buying bread. So if they have to plan ahead, it's a very big shift in the way that they source bread. So we were asking them to plan ahead two days and buy that bread with their credit card online two days before they got that bread delivery. Um, some people... It was a bit problematic, it was wasn't it? It was pretty problematic. <laughs> it was really challenging. People were really... It was doing their head in. But um, you just have to persist. Slowly we're
1: training them, that's right. Yeah, yeah. and
2: you yeah. just have to be really gentle and just say, it's okay, you're going to be able to do this. But <laughs> the, the um, easiest way that people can come at that is if they do... Um, elect to subscribe as Eliza does and get the same kind of bread every week and then that can be changed if you manage your own account Um,
1: so for us it means we know (laughs) how much flour to mill we produce to order we don't have any wastage Mm. we're paid Um, we have a relatively simple Mm streamlined admin structure from that because we're not um, Issuing the the issuing of the invoices or the payment receipts is automated. We have. There's um, no need for
2: statements because the payment
1: has been done. made. Our um, I'm, neither of us have got an IT bone in our bodies, but in the back of the website there, there is a module that aggregates the orders for us, so we know then that um, how many of each loaves to produce. Those numbers are exported to a spreadsheet that then produces our production formulas so we know how much starter to bulk up at what time, at what stage, and then we have our recipes that then we are batched into loads for the mixer. So in one (coughs) relatively simple push of the button, we get all the information that we need to work for um, for that week. And it also sends another file to a label printer, And that prints a label for each loaf that um, has the customer's name, what they've ordered, their phone number, their address and any um, instructions for that delivery. And then we put that sticker on a bag and that's how we work in in the bakery. So when it's time to pack, we simply pick up a bag and put whatever is going to that customer in that bag and we have a system mentally of... You know aggregating orders for a certain area in crates and we stack the van in whatever way and when we deliver our route we drive in the same way every day every week and um you know with experience you sort of know where you're going and know what to expect
2: next and so when customers customers are ordering they can elect to have their bread delivered in a delivery zone in adelaide and chris is able to cover that zone um uh from around about 10 a.m until about 5 p.m he's able to deliver to people's homes or their work addresses and because of the layout of Adelaide and because we've got a delivery van um, and because chris has a compass up his ass he's able to get <laughs> heaps of bread out in one day and hand it to people mm-hmm. so there's still that customer contact back in
1: contact with people and
2: um, And then I'm back in the bakery and I'm able to start producing for the farmer's market and I can take phone calls and, um, you know, still maintain that kind of... People still need to talk to you and they like to ask questions and people can elect to also pick up their bread from um, the bakery or from a couple of shops are um, elected as pick-up points. Yeah,
1: let's have some. Were up all for time? (laughs) Yeah. We're good. We've spoken for a fair while. Yeah, what are you going to ask? How big... How many acres are you looking at, like, maxing out for your one bakery? So we use, um, let's say, roughly half a tonne of flour a week, okay? So if if that was all whole-grain flour, that would be half a tonne of grain a week, if that makes sense to you. Yeah, It's, it's a kilo in, kilo out. But that's not the case, right? We use as much, but we use white flour too. So what I'm getting at is between having an allowance for that and an allowance for things that um, may not work or may not be, you know, exactly suitable. I've got in my head this idea that um, we would grow by or otherwise source somewhere around um, 50 tonnes of grain a year for us. Um, and in our immediate area, you know, like anything, <coughs> yields fluctuate. But it's around fifty acres of production, something like that. You know, mm-hmm. like give or take, a t- know, two tons a hectare. Yeah. You know, a bit more in a, a wetter a year, a bit less in a year like like last year's not a not a, a even a consideration. But yeah. in a dry year, you get a bit bit less. So sorry it's about that 50, 50 about, yeah, about yeah. Sorry, about, I jump between yeah. hectares and acres. Sorry, <laughs> yeah. So if we said fifty acres, yeah. yeah But then what you have to consider and what we're trying to get our head around is if you do what we would like to see done in an ideal model, that might be in a five, six, seven year rotation, right? So then start getting up towards, you know, three, four hundred acres of arable land um, plus, you know, other land perhaps without are integrating livestock and, um, you know, uh, other parts of your farm in. So um, it's a... This is what we're struggling with right now. We, we're leasing bits of land to get going and we've formed some partnerships with farmers who are interested in growing some of the seed that we can bulk up, um, which we then, you know, work out different arrangements, how we get it back. But... Um, Well, I think we're lucky in that we've got the bakery bit on the end. That's the value-adding bit that gives us the maximum potential to extract some, you know, financial gain out of it. If I'm sitting here now and honest, I don't know how you would have a viable business at this stage, you know, right now, producing grain on a small scale to sell to other people. There is a very limited niche market for that. Like we've gone, if you like, from this end looking back and saying how do we source our raw ingredients better to give us better bread, if you like, at the other end. That's really our motivation. And, um, like, right now, we our bread baking's profitable, but all this other stuff we do, we fund from that and from other sources, right? Like, we're not... You know, there's, we, well, we don't sell anything at this stage. You know what I mean? Like, you just invest money. And not just in the growing, but we're just going through this process now. So if you want to ask other questions, yell out. But you, once you harvest the grain, you've got to clean it, right, at some stage before you mill it. You can't successfully mill, you know, except in the odd occasion, the sample directly off a header and get high-quality flour, right? There's too much other junk in there that um, you don't want. So... That cleaning technology is very hard to come by um, at a scale and at a level of precision that you require for flour production. Now, big flour milling companies have it. Most on-farm cleaning is not to a standard or a, a level of precision that you require for milling. They're simply reducing screenings or you know taking wild radish or ryegrass seed out of whatever they're going to plant next year. So it's high volume, pretty coarse if that's a if you understand what I'm getting at. It doesn't do the job that we do. The people that have that level of precision cleaning are seed companies, right? So yes they have it. Again it's generally on a scale bigger much bigger than what we require. But they're in the business of cleaning seed and providing seed to farmers for resowing and Often in that process, they're pickling the seed, adding a fertiliser coat, whatever. So that machine is not where you want your food grade grain going through. So we looked everywhere trying to find an answer and like most things, you go back to what we saw in America. So we've just imported last year a cleaner from America. So that means we've got the ability to clean grain. But then you've got to store it. You need to store it. Um, you don't want to treat it with chemicals, right? So we're still learning how we do this, but um, with a combination of carbon dioxide, gas cover and cold storage is seems to be the answer. But again, it's, like, it's more investment in infrastructure and facilities so that you can store this grain over 12, 18 months and maintain its condition so that it's good to use. Yeah. Yeah. So if you, yeah, yeah, for sure. So the question is, um, what threshing um, solutions have we found for some of the older varieties? You're talking about einkorn, Emma Spelt. Yeah, Yeah.
2: they've
0: got double hull. Double hull,
1: Um, hard. Yeah. Yeah. From what we've seen, there is a machine made by Horn in Germany that does a good job, and by a good job, I mean. Efficiently removing the outer husk and leaving the germ intact, right? That's your goal. Well, that's what I think the goal is, right? It's not very easy to achieve. Um, that machine, if we were to buy the smallest one, is about fifty thousand dollars landed in Australia, and then it's probably another hundred fifty to a hundred to install it with the various duct because there's a reticulation component to how it works right so um you need to be pretty keen on that to make that work
2: <laughs> and to take the um penalty that you in yield because yeah, when because, you, know, you yeah, yeah when you get rid of the husk um you probably no. your ultimate yield is um, between 45 and 65 um, percent and yeah. that's why I spelt bread is so expensive. expensive yeah
1: um with again our limited knowledge there seems to be pretty much one variety of spelt that most people grow in Australia. It doesn't. It seems that that variety is not that free threshing, like compared to the stuff we've seen overseas, where you know that outer husk doesn't quite jump off, but it's not impossible to remove it. Right? We've seen here people just like demolishing grain to try and get rid of the outer husk. It doesn't seem to be. That easy and they've tended to either persevere with the existing technology and accept a a lower yield and a reasonably high percentage of grain damage with spell, or they've gone to you know various home modification engineering solutions which work to varying degrees but are incredibly well really very slow in terms of throughput or They moved to associated technologies like things like um, rice polishes and things like that. Pearl it, you know. Now, again, works, but, you know, how much of the germ is intact at the end of that? You know, we've taken various grains. You sprout them, see what happens, you know. Some sprout, some don't, you know. So, yeah, it's um, it's a big challenge um, that... And that level or that next, the other layer of processing, if you want to see more of those um, types of grains grown and are available, um, yeah, it's, it's hard. We're not really sure. And just on the like, iron corn, I don't think I've ever grown anything as hard. Like it is just, I mean, we've seen fields of it, every, you know, people overseas, oh, it's just what really you worried about, you know. But who knows what, we don't know what, um, what What line line we've got really in relation to them. And that's a, in general, that's a big issue. Like a variety like Red Fife, right? That's a wheat variety. It's popular overseas. Um, You know, it's got a bit of a brand around it almost, you know what I mean? But we can go to the gene bank here and say, yeah, we've got Red, give us Red Fife now. But when you talk to them more and understand, you know, the process of that being deposited in there, it's in there, in a container with red fife on it because sometime, you know, in whenever, some person came up and said, I need to make a deposit, here's some red fife, right? Now, is it? You know what I'm getting at, right? It's all unknown, yeah.
2: And if, when you really ask, they'll give you 21 different red fives. Fives, yeah. yeah. So with what with is, a different you know? accession number yeah. after yeah. each. Yeah, sorry, yeah. Um, it's really a lead-on question, Chris, about have you, Yes. It's obviously
1: some yeah. like that and it begins through here. Yeah. it's not quite that. Yeah. Yeah. That's real money? Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um but yes, um and it's something that we will do
2: mm-hmm.
1: and we've got a little bit underway at the moment. So um
2: So that's through quarantine. Yeah. yeah. That's so a quarantine process. process. Yeah. yeah.
1: So um Yeah,
2: it's one in year. In
1: quarantine, 3 yeah. seeds go into a pot and um Yeah, they manage one generation of of growing and it's uh, monitored, and inspected. If there's um, any, you know, sign of a disease that is exotic, then you've done your money, basically. So, again, it's, you know, it's very expensive. So you're talking about a very limited um, number of seeds in the first instance. Then you get over that hurdle. We're really... respectful of the process we you know understand why it's in place um but then you you know you go through a three four five year period to bulk that grain up into sort of usable quantities even on our scale yeah yeah I don't know the we haven't to got that. there yet yeah. <laughs> but the
2: but the grain quality varies it's I'm not being ridiculous it varies hillside to hillside so it it really does there are microclimates that are um, manifested in the the final result so I imagine there would be and then um, if the health of the plant is anything to go by, you will get more flavour. If you've got a really healthy plant that has managed to put down really good roots and um, has good leaf cover, good tillering, so there's that aspect as well. And hence, when we are doing these trial plots and looking at all these different types of grains, um, it, automatically I'm favouring ones that have you know, these really robust plants that um, when I dig up they've got Really good root systems. Um, Of course, I've got to um, look at how I'm growing the plant as well. And, yeah, it's it's very complex, but um, it's pretty fun doing all that stuff. But, yeah, there would be... Other people do talk about a terroir. um, I think it's something
1: just on the flavour, like... I think before we got into this, we would get bread, make bread, we'd, we'd get other bread. This is really tasty, but if you really sit there and analyse it the flavours that you're appreciating they're derived from what i, I always put them in two categories. one is from fermentation and the second is from the baking process itself right so from a maillard type caramelization reaction right that's what you take you weren't sitting there going Geez, this is wheat or this grain tastes of this or tastes of that 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 wasn't
2: part of the language yeah
1: mm. it's not there mm-hmm. but when we we're overseas you could you could see this and you saw it, more, you know, repeatedly. So we're at the very start of all of that, but my background's in the wine industry. Sensory evaluation, you know, it's a very well-understood, you know, st- defined, structured, studied process with a, a a terminology and a language around aromas and flavours and textures and perceptions that a lot of people Understand, and therefore you know can be widely communicated. But when you start talking to people about what flavour of grain or flour or bread you know, it's all kind of new, you know. And that's that's part of the the evolution and the challenge is is developing that language and um, and um, you know getting a bit of like obviously it's an individual perception, but behind all that a bit of universality or whatever about the about the dialogue, you know, yeah. Can I just acknowledge that you two are um, amazing leaders? No, in the we're just. And thanks, so. John. <laughs> and, um, and we are just totally lucky to have you guys leading the pack. But um, in a sense, you are doing a lot of it, reinventing the wheel. But um, I, I just wonder if you want to mention work of Steve Jones and, and his relationship with the farmers in Schedule Valley and crop rotations. And stuff.
2: Yeah, um, we um, had because we had read a really great book that you guys have probably heard of called The Third Plate by Dan Barber. Um, He's a chef from New York who's um, luckily enough to be funded by the Rockefeller Foundation, so he has a lot of um, financial and time on his hands, financial freedom, to do a lot of research. And it's very, very valuable research into the origins of seeds, into the origins of flavour and really to pursue um, social justice and and financial economic justice for small-scale farmers. So part of reading that book was seeking out some of the um, resources that he referred to in the book. And one of them was um, Dr Steve Jones and his work at the Washington State University Western Extension um, near Seattle, um, at Burlington in um, the States. He has um, set up a um, an institution called the Bread Lab where they do um, very um, precise, well, very um, wide-ranging, actually, um, research into um, uh, seed diversity and also um, seed breeding and seed production that is um, specific to the location of where the farm would be. So in the Skagit Valley, which is where the Washington State University Western Extension is located, um, the farms around there are all 100 acres maximum. Therefore, as you would understand, there is a viability question about um, that sized farm. He um, really wanted to be able to support them to um, become more viable going forward and set up um, a lot of research, um, seeking out a lot of funding from philanthropists and senators and um, government funding um, to support lots of different programs, buckwheat, pulses, um, wheat... Barley, vegetable seeds seeds and um, perennial um, crop like um, I think they've got pulses and barley and wheat and rye going in the perennial system. And it's all about trying to support the local farmers going up into Alaska and um, down into Oregon um, only because that's where they are um they're really breeding um varieties that uh the farmers can access niche markets with in the end they've got good yields they're able to be farmed they've got um, and they good have flavor the, they have
1: a high value end use in mind as well at the same time that's one of their sort of i suppose parameters isn't it yeah, yeah that's
2: right and then part of that is um they um really support the farmers to find rotational crops um in these systems that have high value as well so then they make very close associations with um, chefs, bakers, um, brewers, maltsters, um, who are yeah. end users and processors, and what else? Millers. Oh, millers. Yeah, yeah, millers um, yeah. to um, be able to sell direct from those farms. Um, and, uh, sort of
1: outside of, you know, bulk commodity trading systems,
2: if you like. Yeah. And then they set up, um, distribute, you know, transport and then the cleaning facilities, as Chris was um, describing before, there's you start with the seed, you go to the end user, you fill in all of the pieces in between and then you look at the me- mechanics and the infrastructure. And it's a huge problem project done by quite a small team, but what they do is they um, inspire people to um, find um, really useful people to help fill in all of those gaps. So that's what John was referring to. Um, It's something that we're doing in Australia. John's part of a group that we're part of as well um, of um, grain users, and um, it's... Very um, complex because we're riding, we're using some of the um, commodity system infrastructure, but um, we're also trying to rebuild a lot of those parts in the puzzle that um, aren't available to us. So I think that's what you're referring to. Steve Jones is really the the head of this program, and it's um, very much an economic justice issue for yeah, him. No,
1: it's- for you guys as farmers is this is your way in so I mean they're eight years ahead of us ten years, mm-hmm. eight years ahead of us over so yeah. there and there they found ways through Steve Jones to actually you know value add to every crop in the rotation like you were saying so you know pop some sort of grass in the rotation right grass or whatever to do whatever functional thing you want to do it. in terms of soil and stuff um, why don't you come to us and say what do you want you know, as bakers, we, we'll tell you what varieties we want because we know what the flavour is. We're starting to do that research. So we'll, we'll say to you, why don't you plant this? And you, you know, somehow <laughs> micro-head it and harvest it. <laughs> <laughs> this, <laughs> is where the, this is where we're it's so far behind. It's in the equipment Five the minutes? Uh, yeah. Is there, like, say, for those of us that are kind of angle, is there a lot of bakers out there that would understand Yeah, I know what you mean. <laughs> yeah. The, yeah. Okay. So I think yeah. the answer to that is there's a lot of interest, okay, within mm. certain circles, right? They tend to be smaller scale, um, higher end bakeries because at the, um, the volume end or the, you know, larger scale production type bakeries, um, it's ultimately all about cost. And once you get into... Um, mechanised bread production facilities, you come back to this, you know, functionality of flour, predictable performance, Mm -hmm. you know, very um, basically robust parameters, you know, you can do anything to it and it works, right? So that's not the case with, you know, grain that you might grow, let's say, on a small scale. But translating that interest of those bakers into a market or a commercial transaction... Most of these bakers are in Surrey Hills or South Yarra or, you know, Bondi, right? <laughs>
0: yeah.
1: How do they get your grain cleaned, stored, transported, milled into something called flour that they can use? That is the challenge, right? So... Um, What we saw, say, in America, for example, there are farmers, some of them on a very small scale, some what we might consider more commercial, you know, like farming in the hundreds of acres, but they have the cleaning and the bagging technology and the storage on farm, right? That doesn't happen here very rarely, right? Then in America, they've got these brown vans, this thing called UPS, right? You get like we were in um, uh, Providence in Rhode Island, which is near Boston. You know, in the New England area, in the Northeast. He's getting twenty kilo bags of grain from Arizona for two or three dollars in the post. You know, they just post them to him. Right? That's how he gets it. Right? And then he had his own mill, so then he could mill that. Right. So, very few bakeries in Australia have a mill. Even fewer have a mill that can produce a, a high percentage, if you like, of the flour that they use. Often it's a small benchtop mill; it can produce a few kilos, you know, which they can then blend to give some interesting complexity to a loaf. But it's never going to be the bulk of the flour, if that makes sense, of what they do. So there's very few people with that. So these we're, are the. We're working as a community. We're working. We're coming. We're coming for you. Yeah. Um, but there's also
2: a, um, moving forward, there is, from this small niche um, market, um, the big guys are interested and that's not to be sneezed at. So um, tip top of approach a friend of ours in Sydney who does this, he um, gets clean grain from farmers and he has a mill and they want to um, borrow some of these ideas about getting a more nutritious bread to their um, customers in IGA um, supermarkets, for instance, because that's a good—that's that's got a good um, demographic around it. Um, they're probably more likely to um, be buying um, bread with fresh whole grain flour in it for their families. And um, so he's looking at setting up contracts where um, they can actually get an approach. In the states, they call it the Approachable Loaf Project, but it's getting to um, it's getting um, this type of bread in a family-friendly manner um, that has, say, four days shelf life on it into um, supermarkets. That's happening in the states. It's a new project, but it's also being talked about in australia and sometimes these things all it takes is like five conversations a few people to start talking amongst themselves and before you know it there's product out there sure yeah we, we do have to wrap it up but sure you have to manage that and you and things do get bastardized but um how great would it be for my kids to be able to go to the iga and get um that kind of locally produced flour in a locally produced loaf um, for their lunches and they don't have to wait for the Saturday farmers market for their parents to go so it's yeah. definitely there's a lot of interest
1: um, If there's more questions we'll'll we'll hang around, around now. yeah we're still there's, around. Um, some bread if you want to try it We'll open if you want to see what the flour smells and feels like we'll just we open can these rip packets the top off, yeah. um, there's some postcards if you want to take one you can look on our website and we're really open if you want to contact us and um, ask us questions. If you think we can contribute something, do you too? Well, we At do. The yeah, market. so we got. Yeah, um, and thank you. Thanks for listening. Yeah, thanks
2: and for listening and for your interest. <laughs>